All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. Um, so yesterday, so for those of you that don't know, uh, Janet, us, and I'm a new face to you. Uh, you have to look at me for the next few minutes, and I'm sorry about that, but you'll recover uh, after the Hawks win today and the Sounders. So um, my wife and I unpacked our last box yesterday moving into our house, which for those of you that know what moving is like, it's like, yes, victory. So we uh, are officially in. So we're loving living here in Seattle over in Greenwood, and it's fantastic. So today, as you've heard, we're going to look at what it means to be on mission, why we're on mission, and where that comes from. And so um, the word mission in and of itself is an old word. It's a really old word in the church. Uh, the first time it really shows up uh, and starts to gain a lot of traction in church history is around the third century with the guy, you've probably heard of his name, St. Augustine. He spoke about it. And the word mission, old Latin word, all it means is this, the sending of God, the sending of God. That is, God sends his word into the world. You see that in the Old Testament through the prophets. In the New Testament, you see him send his son into the world through the incarnation of Jesus. And then he sends his spirit to the church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And then he sends his church into the world with the good news of the grace of gospel found in our Lord Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So that, so when we talk about mission, there's a lot of ways you can go about defining it. And so for sake of simplicity, and this is not a church history lecture, uh, for the sake of simplicity, what we'll define it as this morning is this. The mission of God is the response of the people of God to the grace of God. Okay? Another way to think about it is this. It is the horizontal application of the gospel. That is, the gospel has transformed our lives, and therefore it is our response to that message and to the world around us. And so we're going to look at just three different places of Scripture, and they're very famous parts of the Bible that most of you have at least come across at least once in your life if you grew up in church. So the first one, let's go there. We'll go to Matthew 28, what Pastor Drew just read, with uh, the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, this is this is a really, really big part of the Bible. Um, so the verses that actually precede Jesus' sending of the disciples is actually really kind of funny. So after Jesus has lived the life, died his death, resurrected from the dead, and he spent a few days with the disciples proving his resurrection from the dead, there's this interesting part where they gather around Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel, and it says, they came to where he had directed them. In verse 17, it says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, which is what you should do if, if you see the resurrected Jesus. Okay, but some doubted, which is really funny to me. You're like, so Jesus is up from the dead, and you're going, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I saw you crucified on Friday and resurrected on Sunday, and we spent a few weeks together, but I'm still struggling with doubt. Just so you know, Doubt accompanies the Christian faith. This is not blind dogma that you're supposed to just be like, yeah, I, I read it in the book, so I believe it. And I don't have any questions about that. You should have questions when we say God spoke the universe into being. Uh, Jesus was born of a virgin, resurrected from the dead, sent the Holy Spirit. If you don't ask, oh, and you're going to heaven. If you don't go, you know, I, I struggle with at least one of those. Um, think again. That doubt is a big part of what it means to have faith. Without any doubt, you can't even call it faith. So then, after they're standing there looking at Jesus, and he's about to ascend back into heaven, 
he gives this, the Great Commission, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, which is what you can say if you resurrect from the dead. So he's, I'm in charge. All authority. Like, you're right. Yes, you. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, listen. When it says this, when he says go, this is not an empty command just to get out there and get to work. I've done the heavy lifting of the cross and the resurrection. Now, you get out there and get busy and make my time worth it. That's not what this is. But rather, the way this reads is literally, as, as it translates from the earliest language, it says this. As you go, that is, as you live your life, as you find where you live, where you work, where you play, where you hang out, as you go through your life, make disciples. That is, be intentional with the gospel that you've received. So as you go, make disciples. So the question becomes, for Christians, once we meet Jesus, what do you do? Do you go on a crusade, like in the middle of ages? Middle middle of ages. <laughs> Been watching some Lord of the Rings. I'm thinking about Middle Earth and other things. Okay, anyway, in the Middle Ages, do you go on a crusade and attack those who don't think like you, believe like you, talk like you, worship the God? No, we don't go on a crusade. Okay, well, do you hide in a bunker? Go underground, buy some left-behind books, and just wait for the rapture that's not going to happen anyway. Like, (laughs) what do you do in the meantime? Jesus says, as you go, as you go, be intentional with the good news of the gospel and make disciples. That is not just make announcements every once in a while that there's a God in heaven, but be very intentional about making disciples. Those who would and he described, defines it as those who obey my commandments, who follow after me. And he says, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Meaning this, baptism speaks to, I've been cleansed of my sins. Baptism speaks to, I've been plunged into a relationship with God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism speaks to, I'm a part of the church community. Go and baptize people. Disciple them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's one of the best parts of the whole Great Commission. He says this, And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is not him sending us out with busy work, but rather, I'm going with you. That the Great Commission is intended to comfort disciples. I'm with you through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ is with us, Christians. So when we go into our world, into our workplace, into our neighborhoods with the good news of the gospel, we go not alone, but with Christ. When we're in those moments where it's awkward and you're talking to people who may or may not know the Lord Jesus, you're not alone in that moment going, I got to argue this guy or this girl into following Jesus. You're not alone, and you're not isolated all by yourself. You're full of the Holy Spirit, and Christ is with you. How long? Till the end of the age. That's, that's, that's great news. That's really fantastic news, that our God goes with us. Just think of other world religions and ideologies that swirl around the city of Seattle right now. How many other followers of other faiths say, yeah, my God goes with me? My God goes with me. No, ours is unique. The Great Commission is for everyone. It is not for the guys and gals that go to seminary. It's for everyone who would say, 
I belong to Jesus. Then Jesus goes, okay, well, here's the assignment. Here's what we are supposed to do in the meantime. All right, there's point one. I left my notes down there because I just wanted to just go no notes today. So here we go. So there's Great Commission. Now, here's one of the most famous parts of the Bible. You've heard of uh, the Good Samaritan. Oh, yeah, 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 that guy. Yeah. Okay. Well, this would have upset everyone in the first century with Jesus, a Jewish man, highlighting the moral character and making the hero a Samaritan. These were people that the Jews typically hated, that they resented, that it was a, it was a strong boundary. They were called the unclean. They didn't worship God the right way. Lots of bad history. Jesus has an amazing conversation with a man. It says this in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Fairly great question, especially when you're talking to Jesus. What do I need to do to go to heaven? Great question. He said to them, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, this dude in the Old Testament, Bible, he knew his Old Testament really well to take all of the law and the prophets, sum them up into that, that phrase, pretty good. That's actually really good. And so that's why Jesus is like, you, you nailed it, okay? But he, Jesus says, so go, do, go do that. But he, desiring to justify himself, or said to Jesus, well, well who's my neighbor? So apparently he was okay with a lot of it, and then he got to the neighbor part, and he's like, actually, can you explain this neighbor bit? Which is <laughs> great. So Jesus replies, of course, with a parable, because he's Jesus. So he says it this way. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is just a few miles, by the way, and it's a very narrow, it was a rough pass to get from this city to this one. So Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest uh was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So Jesus goes right after the busy religious person, the very important religious person, the priest. And he goes, he sees a dude that's stripped naked, beat, left half dead, in a gutter, and the priest goes, I got to get to church. So, oh, maybe somebody else will come along. Well, there is. So likewise, a Levite, who was also a very religious person in the community as well, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So it's, it's literally making an intentional, I'm not going to get involved. Oh, for 2 regarding the local religious community. All right. But a Samaritan, as he, journeyed where he, uh, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That word, you've heard it before uh, around here. The word compassion is a, is a word, spaknitzomai, uh, which it, for some of you guys with study Bibles in church, it'll have like a little number right there, and you go down to the bottom, and it's like splakna, meaning guts or bowels or entrails, right? the heck does my guts have to do with anything? All right. Well, it has a lot to do with A, biology, and, but, but, but it has a lot of theology right here. Okay, look. 
it literally means this. That when the Samaritan saw a man stripped naked, broken down, beat, left dead in a gutter, his gut was wrenched. That he actually felt something. That he actually didn't just see another dude that might need a little help. He saw an actual human being and everything inside him wrenched. And listen, it wasn't just a gut-wrenching, oh God, that's horrible. Look at Haiti. Look at, look at what's going on. Look at the oppression that's happening everywhere. It's not just a gut-wrenching, oh my gosh, this is terrible news. It was a gut-wrenching, I have to get involved. I have to get my hands dirty. Because why? That's a human being. That's a human being. Look at what it says. He felt compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I come back. So he, he totally takes care of this guy, gets off his own animal, bandages the guy up, gets his hands messy, puts him on, takes him to the inn, and says, just kick your feet up, man. Get better. I'll take care of the bill. Then, this is great. Jesus asked, so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? <laughs> to the man who fell among the robbers, he said, oh, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, then you go and do likewise. You see, when we talk about mission, you're talking about human beings. So listen, church. When we talk about mission around here, and if you've been in any kind of evangelicalism over the last several years, especially if you've been kind of involved in a church up close, here's what oftentimes, at least I've heard pastors use this language behind closed doors. When you talk mission, what is it? It's marketing, it's branding, it's logos, it's websites, it's being connected. And, so, and here's the deal. When God thinks about mission, it's not that those things aren't, don't find their place in the world. Here's what it is. When God thinks about mission, he's thinking about people. He's thinking about human beings who, by the way, I know this is ridiculously unpopular and I've dreaded saying it all week. And Drew actually made, is making me say this point. Um, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Um, We're on mission because the world has sinned against God in some grievous ways. And God is a holy God and a good God and a just God and actually judges. He, he judges in the end. That what we read in the Apostles' Creed was real a moment ago. Not just that I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Not just the virgin birth part. Not just the buried, descended, resurrected but what does our doctor what does the bible teach us that jesus returns to judge every last man and woman hebrews tells us we do give an account for our lives and i know it's unbelievably unpopular and it offends us But we've offended God. And thus we call Jesus our Savior for a reason. 
that the world needs saving. And so that's why we engage our city, not only with serving with our hands, but we actually express and articulate the gospel message to others saying it is imperative that you understand, you know, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever uh, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whole John 3, by the time you get to John 3, 36, Jesus is down here talking about the wrath of God. That it's important that we remember, no, no, this world is going to be judged. This world, we do give an account. And so I have good news. There is saving news. There's been a good God in heaven all along who loved us enough to give his only son in our place for our sins that we could become the righteousness of God, that we could become the children of God, that we could be set free from our sins, that we don't have to live in sin and fear and shame and guilt and bondage and sit under the fear of judgment, but rather we now are welcomed in by the grace of God. It's great news, and it's our responsibility for us to then give expression to that reality. That's, 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 that's the mission of the church. And there's a lot of things we could get off course on and be about at the church. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us the gospel is of first importance. It's the most important thing in the life of the Christian. And for the Christians here this morning, you're like, yeah, totally. Yeah, you're right. When I hear you talk about Jesus and you're telling me and I'm reading the Bible and going, yeah, yeah, that's the most important thing. It's more important than my house, my car, everything that I experience in this world. This becomes of first importance. So when we think about mission, we're thinking about people. We look at those around and go, I'm going to engage. And if you notice the Good Samaritan didn't wait for the guy to repent of his sins or clean his act up, or anything else, he ran to the guy in the ugliness, in the brokenness, in the nastiness, and got his hands involved in the guy's life right there. Empowered by compassion. Why does Jesus point that out? Because this dude's heart, the good Samaritan's heart, resembles God's heart. That when God looks down on our broken world, that is precisely what God did. He got involved in our mess. He bandaged us up. He carried us to an inn and has paid the tab. That's great news. And it's for you and it's free today. No matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done, that's the heart of God toward his people. That's awesome. Okay, so I could just blast off. All right, so anyway, it's like last thing I want to show you from uh, Acts. Okay, so there's, there's the Great Commission. There's the, 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 the Good Samaritan. Now listen, what do we do in the meantime? Look at how Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, for if anybody doesn't know, he used to murder Christians and lock them up. Jesus came out of heaven, knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and told him to knock it off. Essentially, Paul, (laughs) you're right, I should stop this. Uh, Paul repents and is empowered by the Holy Spirit and goes about planting churches in all of the known world at the time in the first century. Pretty radical change. So no matter, again, if you think you're too far from God this morning, 
or you've outsinned the grace of God, you need to look again. So, listen to this. Verse 16, Paul is waiting for some friends to catch up with him in the city of Athens. While Paul was waiting for them at at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him to, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For, for you bring some strange things to our ears, which is great. The Areopagus was a, was a popular place. It was oftentimes a, a courthouse, but it was kind of a hill as where well. It's where lots of ideas were swapped and shared. And so they bring Paul right in the middle, and they're going, what are you talking about? The Epicureans, those people were hardcore materialists. There's nothing beyond the here and the now and material. So anyway, they're, they're talking. You're bringing some strange things to our ears, namely this virgin birth, crucified, resurrected Messiah that you keep preaching about, but we can't see him anywhere. So what's the deal? They're asking why Paul's doing what Paul's doing. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time and nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive, in every, I perceive in every way that you're very religious. Listen, if you want to know Paul's or one of Paul's ways of going about engaging, he gives it away with that word perceive. That is, he's standing around in a city taking notes, and he goes, I can see that you're religious. You got idols set up everywhere. I perceive, I notice what's going on. I see that you're very religious. For as I passed, I observed the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God, (laughs) which is awesome. Paul's like, oh, unknown God, there's my end. I know him. All right. To the unknown God. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, Lord of heaven and earth. He does not, look at this church, this is awesome. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. If you want to read a funny psalm later, it it makes me laugh. I don't know if it's written to be funny, but I always grin. Uh, Psalm 50, go read it later. It literally, God says to to David, uh, if you were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Which is like, if I needed a snack, you'd be the last person to know, man. I got this so under control. All right, so he is. So he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he gives himself, he gives uh, to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he's saying, our God doesn't need anything. Our God isn't in want. Our God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all power. All powerful. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't live in the little house you built. He's got everything in the palm of his hand. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted, listen to that, periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. And he's not actually far from each one of us. Do you hear that? 
Listen, church, your address is not an accident. Determining the times and the places where we live, does that sink in? That I, I live in Greenwood because God is sovereign and ordained that Greenwood would be the place that we plant our family. God ordained you live in Queen Anne, Maple Leaf, Ballard, U District. Tangletown, I don't, wherever you live, God has actually ordained not just that you would come to faith in Christ, but precisely where you live, God's ordained your address because he cares, because he has a plan, because he's that big, that sovereign, that in control. And so as Christians who believe Jesus, who believe and receive the gospel and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we look at our neighborhoods around us as stewards of those neighborhoods, so to speak. Or an old church word would be parish. That we look around at our neighborhoods, at our parishes and go, I got to start asking some questions. So church, think about what do you perceive in your neighborhood? What are people talking about in Greenwood, Green Lake? Ballard and so on. What are they? What do you perceive? How are you studying the culture around you, Christian? That we don't just drift through life going. I guess I, guess I just wound up here and I go to church on on, on the weekend because I guess I need a religious hobby. That is not what God sent Christ into the world for. But rather, our response is, "Who's moving into my neighborhood?" Who's moving out? Why? What businesses are coming in? What businesses are going out? What's school like here? What's education like here? And start asking the very simple, practical questions of who's around and how can I go about engaging them with the gospel? And, and look, we don't have to get into all of the rest of the passage, but what Paul starts doing is he starts quoting local poets that did not follow Jesus, by the way. He starts quoting other guys. People, we would just say like people on the radio today. And he quotes them and starts tying these ideas that these people that don't follow Jesus to the gospel going, can you see what these guys are talking about actually relates to God and the gospel? So Christians, as you listen to KEXP or whatever you're listening to, think about it, hear it through a gospel lens. Going, I've been transformed by Jesus, and therefore everything that's coming in, I'm not just passively absorbing culture. I'm filtering everything with the mind of Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, for the good of my neighborhood, for those around. That is, if all you do is memorize the Apostles' Creed, but have no idea about how to go about making some of these truth claims relevant in the life of the people that you're talking to, what's the point? That we think about this and go, how can I, how can, how does this impact me here? How does this come to bear on my neighborhood? You see? So God has given us a gospel. If you're struggling with where, if you're struggling with going, God, my heart doesn't feel compassion for the guy in the gutter. I'll be honest, Lord, I'm super busy. I'm exhausted at work, at home, family. You know, life is life. <laughs> and I really don't take time to think about those around. 
I'd strongly, strongly encourage you to slow down and think about what uh, the greatest writer in the history of the world, uh, Brennan Manning, had to say. And I know that might, might be an overstatement. But listen to what Brennan says in the book Abba's Child. He says this, that our hearts of stone become hearts of flesh when we learn where the outcast weeps. That is, if your heart is hard toward those in need, it might just mean that you need to find out what breaks that needy person's heart. Can you sit there long enough without having to squirm your way out of a conversation because somebody's telling you about how bad it hurts? Can you stay present in those moments? And listen, hear the stories, hear where they come from. I found more often than not, sitting with someone whose heart's broken creates that compassion in me far more than church conferences or, what, or, or, or the next book or the next thing but to actually look at someone around and go, I want to hear their story. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think what I, I want to do this morning too, um, I want to take a moment, I want to pray that we would be those people, that God would give us that heart, that compassionate heart to love those around and engage others with the good news of a God who is willing to give his son that we might become the children of God. So let's do that. Let's pray. And then, um, and then I'll, I'll go into a time of where we set up our time of communion. Um, Father, we ask. We come before you, God, first and foremost, saying thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that the Great Commission comes after all of the hard work that you did, Jesus. Would you help us respond rightly? God, would you move deeply on our hearts here at Redemption? That we would see people far from you come to faith in you. That we would see people regenerated. That they would get new minds, new hearts, new lives, new identities in Jesus. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place for our sins. That we don't have to inherit wrath, but rather we get grace. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to comfort us, to empower us, to convict us, to guide us, to lead us. God, would you send your Holy Spirit to our church to move in such a way that Jesus is known in the city of Seattle. God, would you change our hearts? Help us to look at those around us and to do so with great care, concern, and compassion. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for forgiving us our sins. And please, God, continue to fill us with an infectious joy. We love you, and we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.